everyone and welcome to the Recovery Cast. Dave and I are glad to be back after a hiatus for a few months and we're excited about the lineup of shows we have planned. Today's show is an interview with Ron M. Over the past several years I've been following Ron's travels as he's made several trips to Africa and Haiti and many other places doing NA fellowship development work. We wanted to get a picture of how N.A. is progressing in some of those places and just to capture some of Ron's sharing and storytelling. As you're about to find out, he's all heart and dedication. Both his personal story and the stories about the N.A. communities whose early development he's gotten to witness are truly inspiring. So let's get right into it, with Dave opening in the usual way. Okay. Uh, Good afternoon, Ron. Nice to see you again. And we have a traditional way of starting here, which is to ask to ask you, uh, when did you first encounter the NA message? When and where? Uh, uh, my initial encounter with Narcotics Anonymous was in Washington, D.C., May 10th, 1984. Um, the Reagan administration had just taken Wrote, uh, the inauguration took place in, um, in 1981. And at that time, I was a senior level administrator with the administration. And I was in trouble, deep trouble. And I, I called home to my father, and he gave me a phone number. And um, I called that number. Um, this man happened to be, uh, he told me to come on over. It was at Providence Hospital in Washington, D.C. And I went over and it was interesting that his name was on the marquee, graved in stone in front of the hospital. And um, that man had history with my family. My father, my father had a fourth grade education, by the way, uh, not because he was ignorant, but because his mother died when he was very, very young and never went to school. But he believed in education. And this doctor that I called, um, needed money to finish medical school three years before I was born. And he encountered my father. My father made him alone. So when I walked upstairs in Providence Hospital, he greeted me and told me that story about my father lending him that money so that he could finish a segregated medical school at Meharry Medical School in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. He told me I turned out to be a fine young man. And we got into the conversation, and this is where Narcotics Anonymous, prior to me coming, had prepared uh, me for my moment of clarity. Um, This doctor, about 20 minutes into the conversation, um, started talking about addiction. And I want to thank the members of Narcotics Anonymous in Washington, D.C., Public Information, and all the other people, because... um, he stopped uh, what I thought was a professional intervention and started talking to me about uh, going to a meeting at 8 o'clock that night in the annex of Providence Hospital. And I asked him if he thought I was an addict, uh, a drug addict to be specific. And he told me that addiction was uh, probably the only disease that he knew of to take self-diagnosis. And he told me what I later heard from you guys that I have to accepted I'm an addict. And I went to my first meeting, um, again, the um, 8 o'clock meeting, May 10th, 1984, Washington, D.C., in Providence Hospital. 
And I thank the members for that because this, this professional saw this as a viable place for me to go. And he had personal roots with me. I didn't know him, but he knew me. He remembered when I was born because he and my father had befriended each other. I struggled uh, with uh, my first um, four years of my recovery and uh, my clean date is in uh, 1989. So it took five years for me to actually get clean after that first encounter. Um, they planted a very strong and positive seed because I don't remember a whole lot about that meeting, but I remember the atmosphere of the recovery and the deeper I got into my disease, I always knew you people existed. So when you got clean in 89, were you still in DC? No, I, um, I had migrated. I left the executive branch of the government and I went to work with the House Judiciary Committee over at uh, 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 C Street in Washington, D.C. And um, I received what they called an intervention um, by some people who cared. And I was placed on medical leave of absence in October of 1985. And I um, came to Florida to get away from drugs. Um, so to speak, and um, that was, um, I moved to Florida, um, I struggled, um, I went to treatment for the first time while I was in Florida, and um, I was in and out of the rooms with that same attitude of indifference and intolerance, and um, I just got tired and surrendered in, in 1989, and I've been clean since then. So you've been in in uh, Florida for your whole recovery, except for that early introductory stint in DC? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, um, by the way, I'm grateful. I am uh, um, defensive back, Florida State University, graduating class of 1971. But I got clean in, in Gainesville, Florida. And I live in Winter Haven, Florida now, which is Central Florida. and um, we were directly impacted by the World Convention. I, I must have been 90 days clean when the World Convention came to Orlando in 1989. And um, that was a, a huge fellow, fellowship development initiative that changed my whole vision. And I had already gotten involved in service um, through what I called a trap. Somebody entrapped me into being involved in service. And um, so I was already, I'd already drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And um, <clears throat> so with the World Convention coming in and, you know, that was um, the beginnings of Narcotics Anonymous in Central Florida. And I'm fortunate to um, be a part of um, the proliferation and growth of Narcotics Anonymous, not only in my home town or home area, but um, I've been actively involved in the proliferation and growth of narcotics anomalies here in the state of Florida. And that's um, not because I think I was so much of a servant. I did it out of survival because I knew that if I didn't get in the middle of this deal, I wasn't going to make it. So I, I wasn't like a lot of other people where I thought I had two diseases. You know, that Washington, D.C. influence let me know that I wasn't an alcoholic or an addict and I was clean and sober. I knew from that initial discussion with Dr. Henderson about addiction being a disease, I, um, I bought into that philosophical approach. So as a result of that, we had small narcotics anonymous 
here at Central Florida, um, a lot of my peers weren't as, um, they call it dogmatic, but they weren't, they weren't as certain as I was about Narcotics Anonymous, so they, they uh, sort of ventured to other 12-step fellowships, and I was only went to Narcotics Anonymous, and we were hell-bent to start meetings, to start helplines and um, hospitals and institutions, and to change, you know, make steadfast with our language, you know, um, and um, I'm fortunate for that. I still feel that way. I, I have one disease, and I feel real comfortable that I um, have been actively involved. Uh, well, let's. You and I met. I I I think you and I met uh, when you were an RD. Uh, in fact, we were probably both. When did you serve as an uh, as a regional delegate from Florida to the World Service Conference? So, I, if I had to be specific, I would say 1999 or 2000 is when we met when we were both delegates. I was the AD at that time, the alternate delegate, and we had just changed the language. So, some people didn't know whether they were RSRs or whether they were RDs, and we were really trying to get the language together on the alternate thing. 1999, yeah, we had gone, to, in 1998, we adopted the, the new World Service structure, and 1999 was the first year operating under the new structure, but it was still a single, every a conference every year, and then 2000 was the beginning of the two-year conference cycle. So you, you ended up getting elected to the World Board also. What year was that? I was elected in 2004. Okay. Uh, after that, uh, after the 2000 conference, I challenged uh, at that time the chair to one of his conversations that he had before the conference. And um, we had a discussion about uh, the upcoming book on sponsorship. And um, I wanted to know more about how was an experiential book, you know, how were we going to go about writing that book? And, um, um, I ended up, I placed my name in the world pool and I was um, selected to be on that work group uh, for the sponsorship IP and the sponsorship book. And again, I drank the Kool-Aid. I really, really enjoyed that experience um, in literature. Uh, my, one, one of the things I did uh, while I was in Washington, D.C. earlier in my career was research and policy development. We also had a publishing arm on one of the um, agencies that I had been affiliated with. And so that literature kind of fit me like a glove, just working on that project. And um, I was nominated and it blew my mind that I was elected to the uh, World Board of Narcotics Anonymous uh, in um, 2004. And um, again, I was shocked, but, uh, but um, it, was, um, it was a life-changing experience. Well, that's, there's some, some aspects of your world board experience that I really wanted to talk to you about. Uh, one of them, well, let's see, you, are, you, you, you served for 12 years, two, two consecutive six-year terms, and then as, as is policy at world service at the world board, uh, that's, we're term limited at that point. And so you served a full stint as a world board member. And uh, after I rolled off the board, I was kind of watching your antics on Facebook and watching your travels, and and it and you, I knew that it was in your heart to uh, to go to Africa 
if uh, if worlds because World Service does all these um, um, fellowship development trips, uh, small delegations of members from World Services, and then usually some other people from nearby in the in the place that we're traveling to will all come together and do little um, sometimes little sometimes big depending on the uh, the the place that we go um, fellowship development activities and I knew it was in your heart to go to Africa there wasn't really I think I think maybe you had gone to South Africa once so you had had that opportunity and can you just can you just talk about that just tell that story a little bit about kind of how you felt about that, what happened there. Uh, just just go ahead and tell us about your experience in fellowship development in Africa. Well, I, I want to take you back to uh, some motivation for, for Africa, if, if, if that's appropriate. Yes, please. I, um, I was uh, a nerd at best. I, you know, there were a lot of books in our house, and I read, and I listened, and I paid attention. Uh, we had one of the first televisions in our neighborhood, so that meant that other kids would come over, but they had we all had to lay on the floor and be quiet because sometimes it would be 10, 15 kids who didn't have televisions in their homes. And I, um, I paid attention to what was some of the series, and um, I, I was making a comment uh, with my mother about something I'd seen on television, and and uh, she told me, and it kind of shocked me as a kid. She said, you're of African descent. And I didn't like that. You know, I, and, and my mother was inquisitive as a good mom. She knew I rejected the notion of being African. Uh, uh, and, um, and, and we had a discussion about it. And I told her that um, I didn't like the way the natives acted on, on Tarzan shows, that this guy could, um, could scream and, and, and all those things, and they, everybody looked like they were afraid, and that's not who we were, and that's not how I was raised to be. I was raised to keep my head up and, uh, and, and, and carry myself in a respectable way. That was just reinforced from both my parents. And so what happened with that, my mother got, uh, was able to get me a subscription to books, and I read a lot profusely about the African continent. And it really contradicted what I'd seen on television, most of what I was reading. So that was something that me and my mother shared. And I, and I had pride with that because I had heard early on as a teenager that a man without knowledge of his past is like a tree with no roots. You don't have any place in which to grow. And I took that to heart. Um, and I had talked to the delegate uh, from South Africa. Her name was Leanne. Eliane was uh, was uh, had talked about her experience of going to the European delegate meeting, which was a uh, quite a distance from South Africa, and I think I had seen Leanne at the delegate meeting. It might have been Malmo, Sweden, or someplace like that, and um, she told me about the experience. But she said that uh, that she had a wish that maybe at some point that could be an African zone. And I knew that they had a website, and I knew about the South African NA community. And so we got together. When I, I let the board know that I was interested, I reminded them that, you know, we have this map that has different colors on it that show how much population density our meetings have. Um, and, you know, like the United States, you know, we had a certain color that showed that we had so many thousand meetings per week. 
And Africa was great. That meant that they had a pocket in South Africa and North, they had a few meetings in Egypt and things of that nature, but the rest of the whole continent, I'm not talking about a country, this continent was barren for Narcotics Anonymous. So the office staff um, and Leanne and we got busy and we were able to find other meetings that had been started by expatriates because I worked, served on the uh, sponsorship IP and book project with Connor Horgan. And Connor was well-traveled and he had brought back pictures of a meeting from Kenya. And he gave me that picture. And I still have that picture. And I just knew we were there and I knew there was a meeting someplace and stuff. So we were able to connect with, with uh, Kenya and, and Tanzania and uh, a few other places that had meetings. and. Then there had been some people who had started some grants in East Africa. And doing those grants, uh, it was on, there was AIDS projects, and they were sponsored by the Center for Disease Control. And one of those people had, uh, had, had an interest, and he was from Oakland, California area. And he started, he put up a sober house there. But he was like me, he drank the Kool-Aid. Hmm. And his, spirit, his spirits had been narcotics anonymous. And so what had happened, we had a group of people that were from all over the country, all over the world, who wanted to start the first East African convention, and it was going to be in Dar es Salaam, um, um, Tanzania. And so we saw that as an opportunity. Remember about fellowship development. Conventions might be fun and entertainment and unifying, but it's also a fellowship development initiative. And we saw some possibility with that. When I say we, I'm still talking about the delegate from South Africa, our staff, and of course I had a, had a real interest there. So in May of 2011, by the way, my mother passed away uh, in May of 2011. And um, we decided that there was a time, it was time. So we had found people in Lesotho, which is uh, just, just next to South Africa. Namibia, which is near South Africa, um, Kenya, Tanzania, uh, um, Uganda. It was 13 other countries where we were able to find Nigeria. And we were able to find a few meetings and stuff, maybe one meeting per, per country. Sometime it was six. And um, we all met in Dar es Salaam before the convention. And we got together and introduced ourselves and uh, we provided, NAS provided the transportation. Thank God for the NA literature that gives us the, the, the availability for funding to bring those people together so that they can see what I saw at the World Convention in Orlando, that we weren't isolated, that it was more to NA than Washington, D.C. and Central Florida. And so we brought those people together and they were grateful to see each other. And I remember the first night in the hotel when everybody was checking in and they would look at me, and I had, and and I, I remember walking up to Joe's fat, and he knew I was American, and he said, "Welcome home, brother." <laughs> wow. We both, we both teared up. Jim Cassim Chetty from uh, South Africa um, did the same thing, and um, we were home, and we we bonded quick, and um, let me if I. If I might just interrupt you for a moment, and we'll come right back to that spot, uh, just to make the point that um, Nas 
has a strategy and it's been used in a few different places, it's been used in the Middle East, it's been used even, even in Russia. Russia is now so, so densely popula populated and such a powerful force within NA, but there was a time when there was a small smattering here and there in such a, a huge geographical spread You'd have a little meeting of Russian speakers here and a little meeting of Russian speakers there. And of course, you know, they had multiple time zones. Uh, they were such a, they're such a huge tract of land that Nas uh, selected people from each of these little communities and at Nas' expense flew everybody together and had a workshop. And the, the, the purpose of that workshop was not to say, here, line up everybody and we'll give you the game. We'll tell you how it is. It was to get everybody together, to get to know each other, to create some synergy where they might uh, know each other now and begin to help each other, plus to bring some help uh, from people with more experience. And that combination uh, was hugely successful there. And I mean, it, it wasn't, isn't to say that NAS was successful, it's to say that the local fellowship there was successful, but NAS' initiative at sparking that and bringing it together what, proved to be very successful. We did it again in, in the Middle East, same thing, Arabic-speaking members and small smatterings of NA, NA meetings in various places around the <coughs> Arab-speaking world. Bring them all together with that strategy of now that they're connected, they have each other to, to uh, kind of build on, and that was also uh, that was also successful. So this was replicating that same kind of pro process, except in Africa. And just as you described it, there was maybe a small meeting here and a small meeting. And these little meetings hardly know what it. I mean, it's really hard to to get in a, an NA identity. To un I, I can remember in, when I was new in my little NA community, we didn't have much of an NA identity, we were, but we had each other and we had uh, the, the beginnings. And so that's what you were involved in there. And then let me also say something about zones. Zones are uh, very large geographical uh, areas uh, where m m multiple regions can come together and and you know, sort of regions helping regions and maybe fellowship development activities within that large geographical area, such as Europe, which you which you mentioned, Asia Pacific zone. Uh, there is there's a, a number of zones within the U.S. Uh, and now there's a zone in in um, Brazil. There's the otherwise the um, uh, Latin American zone. There's a Canadian zone, etc. So there was. An, it was hard to even say there were regions in Africa. There was really just meetings. And so uh, Africa had uh, South African region was part of the European delegates meeting, which is somewhat impractical. And yet they didn't have a zone or anyone nearby to connect to. So I just wanted to provide a little bit of that background. So you, you fly in, uh, as part of the, an initiative like I just described to do some fellowship development on the continent of Africa by bringing people together from the various kind of smatterings of NA communities. So that's where we are. You're on the ground there with them. And, and that's exactly what happened, Ron. We, uh, we, 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 we all introduced each, uh, ourselves. Um, we went around and then we did workshops on building strong home groups, atmosphere recovery, um, sponsorship, and as we were doing that, we felt an energy in the room. And we also saw that there were leadership pockets. People started to surface in the room, found out that these were very bright and articulate and vibrant members of Narcotics Anonymous. 
um, we found out that that was a, a, a real energy in the room when they found out that there were other countries. Give an example, just to get think about Nigeria when you look at that. Going to a meeting in Nigeria and being in a place like Dar es Salaam, that there's huge gaps in land from one country to another. So you're talking all the way across the continent and you meet people who are doing the same thing that you're trying to do. From those workshops, those leaders started to talk after the meetings and stuff. And uh, the delegate from South Africa and the delegate from Kenya was surfacing as, as leadership and the delegate from Kenya just asked to speak. And as he asked to speak, he wanted to know how could they continue this? How could they continue to communicate? What could they do to actually connect themselves? And he wasn't asking Nas this question, he was asking the rest of the audience. And um, from that discussion, the Africans from those 12 to 13 countries decided that they to create what is now the African Zonal Forum. That same uh, delegate from Kenya and the same delegate from, um, from South Africa uh, informally took, uh, just took, took the floor and they started to write and they started to come up well, with what would we call ourselves? And that's when they wrote Afrikan. It's, so it wasn't African zonal form, it's Afrikan. Can is the real word, we can. African zonal, zonal form. They named it that day, and they, the Africans were the ones that actually started their own zone in an informal way. And from that, we sort of paved the highway while we were driving on it. And uh, we continued to do workshops. And, and um, once we got a name, we thought, uh, how would they communicate between, between meetings or when would they have meetings? And they wanted to be a certain that they could get support from NAS. And um, once they found out that we were interested in the proliferation and growth of narcotics anonymous on the African continent, uh, they elected. They did, a, we did, they did an election and elected their leaders. And that same Kenyan and that same woman from South Africa became the co-facilitators of the African Zonal Forum. They decided that they would meet via Skype bi-monthly so that they could communicate because they knew that they needed to keep, keep momentum going so that it wouldn't go away. Um, uh, meetings started to grow, not necessarily, um, for my own personal experience, I, I happened to sponsor a few men in Africa. And one of the expectations, there's the same expectation my sponsor have for me, that I have a home group, that I have a service commitment, that I just do certain things. And so I wasn't, with the principal anonymity, I didn't give them a buy about that home group thing. And I remember getting that phone call after we talked on Skype to say, well, how am I going to get a home group? And that's when I sprang it on them. You know, that means you're going to have to start a meeting. <laughs> Great. So, and um, particularly, I, I just recently had an experience where one of the men I sponsored from Nigeria, um, he won't sponsor anybody who doesn't have a home group. And he also was inspired to and had the resources to start a treatment center there in, uh, in, in, in Nigeria. Um, and at that treatment center, as the people go, they've, uh, they've started, I think they got six meetings in Nigeria, now with over 100 million people, and they have a tremendous drug problem there. 
same thing with Rwanda. Uh, there's a guy by the name. He just left uh, left the left uh, United States, uh, but he's a film producer from Rwanda. When you look at Nat Geo Wow, those movies, those are the kind of movies he does commercials for the banks and stuff throughout the continent. But um, he had um, some years clean from another twelve step fellowship when we met. And he asked me to sponsor him when we were in Mombasa, Kenya. And the same expectations came. And um, he not only got the meeting started, we, we helped those countries with literature. But then we not only got the meeting started, they wanted to make sure that as other members, they wanted to be connected in a fellowship development way. Because what happened was after the zonal, after these, after the zonal forum, we attended a convention. So they met many more people in Narcotics Anonymous from various countries, Canada, uh, uh, Norway, um, just all over the world, along with other members. So this was their first convention experience but they found out about meeting schedules and they found out about other ways that people connected in Narcotics Anonymous. So as a result of that, these people wanted their names, they wanted to register their groups. So that when people travel to Africa for business or whatever, they could find an NA meeting. So one of the highlights of one of my sponsees was that there were people from, um, from the United States who found that meeting on the web search. And so they were really thrilled about that because they're registering their groups too. Um, it's been an experience. I've attended um, uh, probably seven conventions, uh, two of them in South Africa, um, the other ones in East Africa, and I've watched them grow. Uh, in East Africa, the, the, uh, the most spoken language in East Africa is Swahili. That's the, that's the common language, uh, the largest language uh, uh, other than English on the continent. And um, it was interesting to try to get some translation done. Um, I give an example of, just to kind of give you a frame of reference. My sponsee um, uh, in, in Nigeria tells me that even though English is one of the, the common language, there might be 600 tribal languages within a state, within Nigeria. So some people, and, and if you've known through your travels, Ron, sometimes illiter illiteracy can be a real barrier. So just because a person might be able to speak a certain language, that don't mean they can read and write it. Okay, so that's another challenge that we find in many places that we, we go. But uh, in, this, in this case, um, we, we started a translation in, uh, in Swahili. Uh, we, we got together after the, after the second convention. Um, uh, the Africans um, uh, appointed and voted in the people that they were going to have. Principal from Uganda, Uganda delegate uh, was part of that, the Kenyan delegate, uh, the Tran Tanzanian delegate, and they were actually doing their own translations. As you know, you have to get the indigenous population in the fellowship before we can start translations. And last May, we presented the first Swahili basic text to the East African Convention. The energy in that room, Man. it's just hard to define. There was also some people there with literature that had not gone through the 
the fellowships process and they were trying to promote that literature and um, the members of that, and it had to be over, I would say probably 800 people in that room that day when, when the uh, presentation of the Swahili basic text and they had some translation, which as I just said, it says illicit literature and um, it was a little blue book, little blue book. And um, the Africans asked them to put those books up and get those out of the room because now we have our own text and we don't want that in our rooms. Nice. Um, there was um, the energy, it was electrifying in that room. Same thing is happening in South Africa. Zulu is uh, one of the largest um, uh, tribes and um, it's one of the most prolific uh, well, the language is, it, it, it's, there's more people speaking Zulu in South Africa than any other language other than English. And uh, we have translations in Zulu, and there's work now to uh, do some translation. Afrikaan has been translated, but there's a lot of translation going on on the, on the African continent. Um, the African Zonal Forum has grown. The, um, the membership, the meetings have grown. Um, I, um, it's, it's, um, it's really enhancing my recovery to actually sponsor these men. I wasn't big on sponsoring people um, out of the country. It, it took another member to encourage me. I, I spoke at the uh, South Africa 20th Convention, and I was a Sunday morning speaker, and I just got transparent. And some of the things I shared attracted a couple of men, and they didn't come to me. They went to Travis to get permission. Travis is a uh, uh, NA World Services staff person. Yes, Travis. Travis was my travel partner, and so I'm not sure whether Travis was um, doing a shakedown on me or what. But she told me the the importance of sponsorship and the what she was getting out of sponsoring other women from other countries. And I thought about sponsorship being a heartbeat of Narcotics Anonymous and. This guy eventually called me, I guess, after he had talked to Travis, and we had a conversation, and I knew he had a willingness and a desire, and I passed my spirits on to him that he needed to write out what he expected from sponsorship, and I told him what I expected, and um, and I told him the only way that I can get resolution from a lot of uh, my confusion and contradiction was to do step work, and um I'm proud to say that this guy, uh, since I've been sponsoring him, he's in a law school. He's getting ready to um, uh, uh, finish law school. Um, he's um, finishing up his fourth and fifth, fourth step. And we've done a lot of work. Wow. And uh, he's sponsoring men now, too. And that was my first sponsee out of the, you know, on the African continent. I, 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 today I sponsor um, in uh, South Africa. I sponsor in Rwanda. I sponsor in Nigeria, and I have one sponsor in Uganda. That that is really uh, an amazing story. I, I I think about when I was new in recovery. Um, when I had nine months clean and I relapsed, uh, I had to have I had to let go of sponsees because at nine months clean, we were we were hardly had a basis for even for our own recovery, but who was going to sponsor these people? There wasn't any, none of us had any clean time. We were, we were all quote unquote pioneers, if you will, you know, which you, I guess you have the choice either to say, you know, they can sort of fend for themselves without 
any sponsors or sponsor each other when they uh, when they're beginning a fellowship development efforts in their own country. <coughs> this is not so much true of South Africa because they've been around for a long time, but some of these places where NA was just getting going, or someone like you can step in and say, "We'll figure out how to do it. We'll we'll use Skype. We'll use Zoom. We'll we'll uh, we'll use email. We'll we'll do we'll take advantage of some of the uh, technical." opportunities that exist today that didn't exist back when you and I were new in recovery. And so, yeah, it's really moving to me to hear that, that uh, those guys get to have a sponsor because you're willing to, to step in and do it. You know, I've been bold, Ron. I, I remember I've done workshops all over the continent now. And um, the road does travel sometimes is talk about uh, allowing the women to, to, uh, to get clean, to stop preying upon them. And, 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 and because that happens, you know, it just doesn't happen in the United States. It was really happening there because not only because of uh, young men being young men, but culturally, you know, women in some places aren't still aren't viewed on the same level as a man in certain religions and certain cultures and stuff. And so I dare to be bold and confront the issue. We brought it up. We've done tradition workshops when we talked about who's missing from our rooms and we talk about the third tradition. And then through that, um, and being that bold, I've had women to ask me for sponsorship. I, um, I'm one of those uh, who am not, uh, I've yet to sponsor a woman, but I will have that discussion with her and ask her if she's really interested I would ask that woman if she will be willing to communicate with some of my friends that I, uh, if I introduce them to them. And so some of those women, and as I will travel and people will find out that I'm going there, there have been women who step up and say, if you know of any women who need sponsorship, some people I basically recruited and said, that was a woman in Africa waiting for your experience. And so there have been times when just through those workshops, when the women won't recover and they would approach me. And um, I just, um, I, I, I just not, I, I don't do that at this point. Uh, I'm not closed minded to that, but I am married. I'm a grandfather and, 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 and I just, um, I think that if you, uh, I, I, I believe that, um, I think that there's a special place for women to sponsor other women. That's just my view on that. And so I've been able to introduce women to various women in the United States, and they're doing the same thing via Skype. Now, I want to tell you something about these young, young people in Africa, too. They are very techno-savvy. Um, um, uh, uh, we, we're using Zoom, but um, WhatsApp uh, in Zanzibar, they have group meetings. You know, they were able to talk. That's the only way I found out that my sister had was dead. My sister died while I was in travel status. And um, they couldn't bandwidth. Internet is an issue sometimes. That's not enough bandwidth in most countries to do this Zoom. It would just won't work. Same thing with Skype. So they've been using uh, uh, various other ways to communicate. I remember do doing step work with Joseph in Nigeria. And... Um, we just got, kept dropping calls. Next thing I know, I guess we'll get a phone call on this very computer, and it was Joseph. He introduced me to Google Plus. It takes less, <laughs> it takes less bandwidth, and the actual uh, audiovisuals audio uh, exceed what we can do here on Zoom and, um, <laughs> and, and other mediums. So 
so you're talking you're talking some of these guys man um one of my sponsors um has a phd in pharmacy uh he also has an engineering degree and um um and i think an mba and he might he might be 30 years old by now and uh, so that's the stereotype of what people might think when they see when these people start to pick up and when you get into get into them they are they're they're diverse just like any other population that you might see i also found out that just like uh maybe the coca leaf grows uh grows in south america there's certain plants that grow in africa that has the same effect that just grows wild on that continent so you might assume that maybe you don't have addicts because of whatever but um i would walk around kenya and see these people on the street with brown teeth and that's because they couldn't stop chewing that leaf that gives them that euphoric effect mm -hmm. so you know and then some countries were banded and some countries it's not illegal um, is that cac ron absolutely see he's well he's good yeah yeah, I, I know about it. Uh, I, what are some of the cultural challenges? You've really touched on a few of them. Um, you, we're taking a, a fellowship that grew up in this, you know, came to be in this uh, uh, North American culture. What are some of the challenges when you, you start to transplant that? And, and Well, you know, <laughs> you know, my eye opener was India you know, so to speak, because India has a class system. If you read your history, uh, that class system still exists. So there are certain people that are exposed to certain things and, 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 and it's just a way of life. And just because we believe a certain thing don't mean that they that the rest of the world. I've heard it said that when the, when the United States catches a cold, the rest of the world sneezes. In some cultures, that effect hadn't caught up. So what happens with this is that you get in places like India, or you get into uh, much of Africa is Muslim, and a woman has her a certain status in certain cultures and stuff. And in certain places, uh, the Maasai, Maasai is a tribe, uh, uh, an ancient tribe in Africa, and um, in that tribe, um, if you have resources and uh, like a certain amount of uh, resource then you can have up to four or five wives. There are other Middle East countries where you may have multiple wives too. And in some cases, these wives don't have the same status as a son. So just, you know, so we're talking about diversity. I can remember being in India. I did a worldwide workshop um, after we left Bangalore. We did workshops in, uh, not a worldwide workshop, we did workshops in, in, in Delhi. And there were women in the rooms, and these women were, were from the university, and uh, they were recovering addicts. And I, there was another woman from Nepal who had been in India for school. And she, they both came to me on the sidelines on break and asked me if I could uh, talk to or uh, discuss perhaps they could become involved in service because they weren't being allowed to be GSRs at that time, but they were fully capable. But the system, as far as they said, saw it at that time, didn't allow that. And it's still, that was one of the challenges that we had during our traditions workshop in, um, in Zanzibar, which is back in Africa. Um, in certain tribes, um, it's still, um, some people are property more than they are an asset to the community. 
So, but you know, uh, Ron is aware of this. Even, you know, the basic text in Japan, it took 20 years. And if you look at translation, our literature has to have what we call conceptual uh, fidelity. And the Japanese, the reason it took 20 years to get the Japanese basic text wasn't because of translation. It was that there was no real concept of God that they can hold on to at that point. And so once we could actually get that done, then we could make the cultural bridge. Uh, one of the challenges with that, with what you just described, and I think we have this challenge in, in Iran and in the Middle East and uh, places where they have certain customs and, and cultural characteristics, gender roles that are uh, the way, defined the way they're defined in their culture. And we're there to carry the NA message, not the American or European cultural norms. And so is there, do you have difficulty? Um, is, is there like a certain kind of withholding from trying to express opinions about things that are fundamentally cultural differences that you would really like to address? But uh, I just, I just, th- I, I picture myself having difficulty uh, uh, wanting to say certain things or maybe be dogmatic about certain things, but they wouldn't be appropriate in that culture, and yet uh, they seem right to me because of the culture I'm from. Do you have, did you find yourself with conflicts like that, or do you just speak your truth however it uh, appears to you? I'm going to take the gloves off right now. I grew up in the South, okay? And sometimes what I said and did could cost me my life. You know, I, when I, I was born in 1949, I'll be 68 years old this year. So I had to navigate somewhat of an apartheid right here in the United States. It's called a segregation. So I knew how to conduct myself because I was taught in my household how to survive no matter where I was at. Okay. And sometimes that means I needed to listen and pay attention to what was going on around me. Now, what that meant and what that translated into is that you had a world board member that was getting ready to leave the United States and go into unknown territory. I always read the State Department website. I knew about the culture. I knew about the history. I knew about the development. I knew about mores and taboos. So the other thing that I was taught as a child is listen. Pay attention to your environment. So with that said, I would navigate, and then I would always engage an individual. Even though we had a group activity, I would always bond with someone that seemed like they had a willingness and a desire, and they were at least available for the conversation. And um, that's why I knew that I could challenge, because I had built a bond with enough people in the rooms when I challenged them to lead the women along, and I challenged them because I was comfortable. I had done enough homework to understand what I could say and not say. Uh, when we left Japan, when we went to Nagoya, Japan, uh, when we were uh, doing a workshop, because again, that was a problem with God, because they just didn't have the concept down, they were calling us higher power, higher power, you know, because we had were able to navigate during the workshops without challenging their culture, but to actually get them to understand what Narcotics Anonymous was and that that power didn't necessarily have to be um, a dogmatic entity, so to speak. And you know what happened in Iran. The only reason 
Iran is a theocracy. You know that, Ron. The only reason that we were able to get Narcotics Anonymous in there because we don't have an opinion on outside issues. So the traditions will help me also as my guiding guiding light, you know. And so to answer your question, Ron, about ways of doing things, I'm an addict, man. You know I always took risks. You know, I, I bought dope right there where the police were, you know. So with that, in mind, most of us have already risk takers when we don't want to take risks, but we just have to be, have a discipline about where we take our risks. So I, I hope I responded to your question. Yes, you did. I mean, there is a, it sounds, there's a balance there between not, not, a, not weighing in on outside issues, on um, uh, doing your homework, making sure you understand the culture you're about to enter, and then when uh, it comes down to something that is fundamental to the principles of NA, like giving the newcomer a chance to, to get clean without uh, uh, taking advantage of them, then you speak your truth uh, irrespective of cultural norms. It sounds like that's what you said. Yeah, but I cut my teeth before I ever made it to World Services in the Bahamas. Isolated community, just like a lot of our other communities, and um, my region, when uh, the Bahamas asked for some help, uh, Bahamas at one point um, had a couple of meetings, but they became a region, which didn't work. And um, that infrastructure fell apart, and they asked us to come down. And, uh, of course, most of the people in the room were male. My wife is in recovery. She went with me. And uh, we snooped around and found out that they, you know, every time a new girl came in there, she was a target. And so we, we, we had frank discussions. Um, fortunately for me that I had, I knew a Bahamian guy who was in the rooms who was a, a jet, jet mechanic who had asked me for sponsorship. So I had, um, so what do you call it? I had intelligence information about how things were going and I had asked him before we actually challenged the group what he thought and they thought well enough for me on that trip man I went to I didn't I wasn't in the tourist areas of the Bahamas I was I was in the belly of the beast AK-47 escort you know I went to the places where they would smuggle people from other countries into the Bahamas you know, because I'm an addict. So, I, you know, I was traveling with my peeps, so to speak. But I, um, <laughs> I see you smiling. But I, I, I learned that there was a certain way from that fellowship development trip when I was, um, um, I think I was chair of the region. I might have been an RD for the Florida region or something like that when we went on that fellowship development initiative that I just, that was my first time taking a risk with the cultural norms. And nobody, nobody threw me away, and um, um, and I got some. I got phone calls after I got I got back to the states um, about how that impacted them, um, how they knew that um, that no addict need die from the horrors of addiction, including a girl. That's great. Yeah. You know, I, when you were talking about Japan, it made me think of some of the early literature that I saw coming out of Japan, where you would see. Japanese characters, which of course I couldn't read, didn't know what they were saying, and all of a sudden there you'd see the word H A Y A hyphen P O W A H, Hayapawa, <laughs> and I thought, you know, and they were basically saying, uh, I guess you know when you when you consider that they are Buddhist uh, and Shinto, 
those are the basic two uh, religions in Japan. Not theistic in the same sense that a Christian or, or Jewish or Muslim religion would be theistic. And so they have practices, for uh, spiritual practices, but the different beliefs. And, and, you know, our steps say, as we understood him, but even the him is to be understood the way it's understood by you. It doesn't have to be a, an entity or, a, or a, certainly not a, a, a male entity. So it is really interesting to see how cultures can adapt these principles and and uh, you know and the and there is that line in the NA uh, vision statement that says that every addict in the world has a chance to experience our message in his or her own language and culture, and find the opportunity for a new way of life. So it's it's just it's interesting to hear your experiences of navigating that territory. Ron, I want to bring up something while we're talking about what happened in Africa. I'm going to go back to something. Kenya borders on Tanzania. Okay, and uh, um, there's been wars through these through the centuries and stuff. So there's always sometimes there's conflict even in the room because of that experience. Zanzibar is a Muslim's practice. Used to, at one point it was a country, now it's a part of Tanzania, but the main body of Tanzania is a Christian country, Christian base that has. Muslims, you know, but Christianity is predominant. Um, they asked for a traditional workshop in Zanzibar, and we invited, when I say we, with the, the, the consensus of the people who were traveling, um, other Africans who were attending that workshop, um, everybody was invited. And there was some effort to get the regular home group members into that traditions workshop. We had, uh, the government has seen us as an NGO and had allowed us to take over a building where they could accommodate us and they would also have meals at very cheap rates to feed those people who are traveling across by ferry to this traditions workshop. And, um, there was so much interest in the first tradition about our common welfare, and we looked at our primary purpose, and by the time we finished that, that workshop, a day later, they had their first meeting of all the groups and areas around Tanzania, and that was the birth of the first area service meeting in East Africa just by having one tradition workshop and, and, and having that much interest, that much dialogue. It was a whole day. We went for 10 straight hours during that workshop. We took short eating breaks to do that. And from that was the birth of the East, uh, the Tanzanian region of Narcotics Anonymous. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And uh, again, we weren't there. When I say we, Nas wasn't invited to that meeting. But they called that meeting after the tradition workshop because they couldn't, until that workshop, the common welfare that we're all addicts and our personal recovery depended on unity, that was something that I experienced seeing too. Where people is just, if you don't have a knowledge, you can't grow from that. But having that knowledge base was enough to have them the brain to come, come forth. Um, I had the fortune of going back now and, um, I attended the first regional service conference um, in uh, Tanzania too. 
That's and great. You I, know, I cried, Ron. I bet you did. I did. I cried. And I'm going to tell you something. It was a very well-tuned, traditional, principle-based uh, uh, regional service conference. You um, know, it, it's such a classic example of the, what I was saying earlier about Nas spending the money to, to um, bring people together so that they can uh, uh, experience um, what we experience when we work together, not not just so that Nas can bring something to them, but so that Nas can bring them to each other, and uh, and then it starts to happen. Then you know, just like it did with us when we found each other, is when it started to happen. Yeah, Tom McCall and I went to uh, Haiti uh, last year, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, remember, I talked about I I India. And I, uh, I've been to Calcutta, I've been to Mumbai, I've been to Delhi. Um, I, I, I've been to various parts of Africa. I've never seen the poverty any place else on the planet that I saw in Haiti. It was interesting to see that this is right in our own backyard. Beautiful country. I'm talking about when you sit there and look over the mountains and see how pristine the water is at the ocean. Um, and that's when you're looking over the trees. But when you get out on the street, uh, it's a whole nother ball game. And, um, you know, <laughs> Haiti is um, a long-standing country. And uh, they're a French-speaking country. Uh, no, they aren't. they're Creole. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a language that's combined with Arabic and Spanish and a little tint of French and all those things. But Creole is a language within itself. But they're taught in the school to speak French. Now, you assume that if they're teaching in the school to speak French, that many people can speak the language. Most people don't get the opportunity to go to a school. There are a lot of private schools, a lot of Catholic schools there, but the illiteracy rate um, in, in Haiti is um, exponential. Um, so when you talk about translation, we were able to take French literature down there, but taking French literature didn't mean the book, the literature was going to be read by the main thrust of the people who would need the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. Um, fortunately, there are other people that um, are trying to do some work in Haiti um, after the earthquakes. So we were able to tag along with them because, you know, they had outreach workers. So doing workshops for the outreach workers made sense, where we would do a public relations presentation to the outreach workers who were actually receiving all these funds from um, rich people all over the world. And so with doing that, um, we had one treatment center in Haiti, one treatment center in the whole country. And so what happened was when they found a person that was truly an addict who needed help, they would send them to that direct them toward that treatment center, that one treatment center. We were able to find the board of directors on that treatment center, and I spent time with them. Time and time again, some of those people had as many as 30, 30, 34 years clean, no, sober, because AA had taken root. But um, these people admitted, um, I must have interviewed a minimum of 10 of the actual board members of that treatment center. And um, they admit out front that they're addicts. They're waiting on Narcotics Anonymous. That was an attempt before the Latin American Zone Forum to go in and start an NA meeting. 
But we all, we both know that it takes follow-up while we got momentum. And so I, uh, I'm going back on my own dime in June, if that's what it takes to go back. Because the same population of people, they're, 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 a lot of them are famous, and I'm not going to give up the anonymity here on, on, on in this forum, but they're committed. They, they built hospitals. They provided transportation. They started schools. The cholera is prevalent there. People are dying every day from lack of medical attention. And um, so, you know, that was a treatment center, a well-known treatment center from the United States who sent all of that staff. They must have had 10 people there that did workshops. Um, fortunately for me, I got a chance to do a public relations presentation to the University of Notre Dame. There, the, um, the dean of the School of uh, Psychology and Medical School allowed us to go in and do a public relations presentation to the class and um, found out that there were cultural reasons why still today say that same thing about uh, culturally not reaching out beyond the family for help, not being as seen to actually cause shame to the family by going to one of those meetings and admitting that you're an addict. Um, so there's some huge challenges right in our back door. We don't have to go to Africa to find challenges. You know, I can find some of the communities right here in Florida, but I have never seen anything like what I saw. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's proper to say this, but one, um, one evening, um, one of the, uh, the board members who I still communicate with him regularly. Um, board, board of what? Board of the treatment center. Okay. okay. Now, we went to meetings. Those meetings are not NA meetings. Are they on AA meetings? They're NAAA meetings. Okay. So we went to a meeting a day at that facility. Because, but A is the predominant literature that was there. Okay, so I bonded with the members who had was seeking recovery there because remember we have to start, you have to grow from where you planted. So we had to find out who was interested in recovery, and we met with them. And I went to the meetings, and that's where I met many of my contacts. And I say my contacts, people that we can actually fellowship with and get a beachhead for Narcotics Anonymous in, in Haiti. I've since bonded with a Haitian American who came, who was born and raised in Haiti, and he lives in Miami, and we talk regularly. And we're going to meet shortly about him going with me because he's a treatment professional. And I want him because he speaks the language, he knows the streets, and um, I would love for him to go back to Haiti with me if I get the opportunity to go this June. So Ron, just just to be clear, are there NA meetings now in Haiti? No. Okay. Were they ever meetings started? Yes, but they died because of lack of momentum. Today, there aren't really an NA meeting there. There's a lot of interest in NA. I met those 10 addicts who were interested in that, but they're afraid at this point because that meeting meets at 6.30, six days a week. So... In order to have another meeting, they're either going to split the group or they have to change another place or another location. There's some fear amongst people who've been clean for 37 years or 10 years that they don't want to end up not having a place to go. So that's why, that's one of the reasons why we're regularly communicating. 
Um, we uh, did some public relations work with the actual um, executive director and the program director from that treatment center. They understand from my presentation the difference between that what our program is all about. Addiction is our problem. So we have allies there, but there's work to be done. No, there isn't. Now, from my experience from starting meetings right here where I live, from, from being one of the people who started HNI in the area that I live and, and Helpline and, and watching other places, this place is ripe for Narcotics Anonymous. Is there a drug problem? Hell yeah. I saw it, I saw it every day I was there. Do I have hope? No, it's not a false hope. We're right on the brink. Based on my experience in, 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 in Africa, we're right on the brink of getting this thing started. We just need to get the people who speak the language right now. And that's why I touched base with Harry, who's a treatment professional down in Miami. Harry has 20 years clean. But he got he 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 was getting high before he made it to the United States of America. And he's interested in going back. We got to get the indigenous population involved before we can get any started. That's the beachhead. Yeah, um, yeah that's that's interesting. You you mentioned that there's uh sort of AA slash NA meetings in the treatment centers and maybe some, you know, amalgam there. And for those of us who are kind of purists, either of AA or NA, sometimes that offends the sensibilities to, because we know that uh, where we live, uh, we don't choose to mix the two and we find that that's not consistent with the traditions and that both uh, thrive uh, when we don't try to mingle them. But when you look at the early going, and even in NA as a whole, Jimmy K et al. called what they began in Southern California in 1953, AANA. And uh, it's, it's not uncommon in remote areas where one or the other has a toehold for, for them to really be kind of mingled together until they can uh, gain their autonomy. So maybe that's the next step is this, you know, is that autonomy? But in the meantime, that people get recovery because there's something there is the, is the good news. Uh, I, you know, it's inspiring to hear you say we're right on the cusp that, and you're using the term beachhead, which is a, a, a powerful term. You know, it's saying that we're about to, we're about to land, and uh, that's that's great. Uh, now, how about Africa? Uh, you talked about uh, seeing the map of Africa, and it was gray, uh, meaning there was uh, virtually no enemies. We know that there was a smattering here and there, but to look at it as a map, it was gray. Uh, what's the what's happening in Africa now in terms of numbers of meetings and, and distribution of meetings throughout Africa? You know, we have pockets of meetings all over that continent and growing. Um, I, I remember telling you that were, um, I think it was 12 nations at that first meeting that we were at. And uh, now it's uh, 14 to 15 to actually meet. But we have Liberia. Other countries are now, um, um, even though they can't travel for various reasons, sometimes it's immigration reasons and visa reasons, they're still a part of that zone. But um, the growth is tremendous. Um, 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 I, I can't give you a number. I don't want to do that. I don't want to destroy any of the integrity of this conversation. But um, it is nowhere close to what it was 
in 2011 when we met when we went over for that first meeting so it's early days still but it's it's in that kind of growth surge uh stage in the early times exciting you know um, um, africans on a farm has its own mission it uh, it has its own vision statement um it has to have policies they practice the same principles and traditions and guidelines that many of us do in other zones around the, around the world. Um, they've advanced. Um, the um, uh, um, uh, websites are, 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 are coming up. Um, I've, um, I've been involved with uh, learning days. Uh, there are learning days uh, all over the continent. Um, uh, these people are involved in service. Um, lots of times they watch other people involved in service because that's the people who get to travel. You know, some of our more experienced members who have a lot more clean time than I do, they take the time and effort to go to those conventions. So they learn early on that service is a part of being a part of and, and, and helping to grow. So, um, yes, it has grown, and I have seen it, I witnessed it, and I know it's happening. And largely because of my sponsees, but I'm in touch with other members of Narcotics Anonymous since we we were early on with this, uh, who were part of that initial CDC uh, grant for AIDS. They still travel throughout the continent. So when there's a new meeting um, in uh, uh, um, Ethiopia, the oldest civilization in the world, you know, um, where the delegates have American sponsors. So the American sponsors, and I talk, uh, my, my children and grandchildren are in Atlanta. So one, David W., uh, who happens to live in Atlanta, we, we talk on a regular basis. So I, even when I'm not in Africa, I know what's going on in Africa because of a network that we have. Uh, one last thing. We're, we're running a little long. I want to ask you one last thing. I just, I would say I was... Um, I was in Italy on a Nas trip, and I remember I, w- I was standing next to Becky, and we were checking into a into a, our hotel, and my phone beeped, and I looked at it, and I and there was a there was a text or an email, and it was from my family that my dad had cancer, and I remember that feeling of being separated from my family, it, unable to really communicate much in a. Uh, trying to figure out what the coins were in my hand and how to, how to you know, just do the basic things and and just how disorienting that was to get to get news like that. And um, I was in uh, uh, where where was I? I want to say Israel, but I can't remember for sure right now. And I and sitting at a at a table and I and my phone beeped and I looked at it and there was a picture of a thirty day medallion. And it was from my son who uh, I, do, I wasn't sure if he was still clean, but uh, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at a picture of a 30-day medallion that he texted me and I started crying at the table and everybody's like, what's wrong, what's wrong? You know, nothing's wrong, man. But I just, uh, it made me think of some of the experiences I've had with you where, where you were traveling. I know uh, you had uh, an experience with your mom. You shared uh, what happened with your sister and, you know, all the travel that we did for World Services, you hear the the bright spots, but sometimes that kind of alienating, uh, lonely feeling you get when you're 
when something like that is happening and you can't be there. So I just kind of wanted to say it like that to tee it up and say, maybe can you talk about your, your mom? And, you know, I always associated with you as, as dare I say, kind of a mama's boy. <laughs> you, you loved your mom so much. You, the way you talked about your mom, I, you know, I would get tears in my eyes you know, all those years that I knew you. And uh, we were at, uh, you you came to a board meeting one time, and well, I'm going to let you tell the story for that from there. Well, my mom was is, is, is one of my heroes. My father too. Uh, my father said of all of his kids, I was more in personality like my mom. And um, I, um, my mother believed in Narcotics Anonymous. Um, she was a uh, she did a lot like uh, she. My mother started Naranon in um, in, in this area. Uh, she and one of the women that she grew up with. And um, so I, uh, my, my mother was supportive of my recovery. And um, fortunately for me, um, I didn't see that the prodigal son would make it home to Florida and get a chance to experience uh, um, his parents in the older years. And uh, fortunately for me, after getting clean and uh, staying clean and and being a productive member of society, I was honored with being able to take care of my mother in her in her senior years, because my mother eventually got got dementia, and um, I um, had the resources to help out with that. And my wife was supportive of it too. Uh, my mother was really happy that I was helping other people and giving it back through Narcotics Anonymous, because that's how our household was. We gave back to the community. That in 2011, um, you all had, uh, and you were instrumental in that, had, um, I was the chairman of the board of directors for Narcotics Anonymous. And uh, that meant that the executive committee always went to California early and um, to set the agenda and, and do other things that an executive committee would do. And um, I went by the morning before I left for Los Angeles and um, visited with my mother and I remember my mother saying, who would have ever thought it would be you? And she was talking about taking care of her because I was, you know, addicts don't use this stick around. We aren't committed and stuff. And that's who I became in recovery. And um, I was honored by her saying that. And I asked if she was okay. And she said, I'll be fine. And just go help somebody. Uh, my flight, this is about 4 o'clock in the morning. And my flight left Orlando right about 7 o'clock. Time zone difference of three hours. When I land in Los Angeles, it's about 9.30. And by the time I get transportation and get my baggage to the Warner Center Marriott, as I got in my room, I got a phone call. And it was one of the, uh, the, the nurses that said that my mother had fainted. And um, I was scrambling trying to, and the call dropped. And I was scrambling trying to call back. And the next call was from the doctor in the emergency room. And she told me that my mother uh, was not going to make it, but she could still talk and she could still hear me. And that if I wanted to tell my mother goodbye, that I needed to do it now. And I was afforded the opportunity over the phone to uh, thank my mother for birthing me, for taking care of me when I couldn't take care of myself, for helping me to be the man that I had become not only in my recovery, but in my life as a whole. She was always a spirit behind me um, to encourage me to be a student athlete, 
um, and a lot of other things that, uh, that I've accomplished since I've been alive. And um, fortunately for me, other recovering addicts will be able to be of service to me. They help me to leave Los Angeles and come home and take care of their make arrangements. The prodigal son was the leader of the family who could actually be the executor and take care of my mother and give her a proper burial. And um, for that, I'm always grateful. Um, I grieve the loss of my mother today. Uh, same thing happened uh, when I was, um, that same traditions workshop I was telling you about, they had asked come together and the Africans had asked me if I would be the Saturday night speaker. And this is a, a Friday when they asked me. Saturday morning was when my brother contacted me and told me that they had found my sister dead uh, that morning. She, uh, my, my, my sister had a blood clot and she died in her bathroom that morning by herself and they had to do, a, her staff had called and asked the cops to do a wellness check and they found my sister home alone. And um, I got that call and um, I knew that my sister was dead and I, I went ahead and spoke that night. And uh, part of my story that night when I shared uh, with the Africans at, after that traditions workshop was about loss and grief and no matter what, not picking up and, 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 and persevering and walking through what you have to walk through. And they helped me because Zanzibar, you don't just leave Zanzibar. You have to catch a ferry, get to the mainland, and then you hopefully get good transportation so you can make it to an airport. You have to really rearrange some things to be able to get a seat on a plane. And um, the fellowship helped me get home. And um, fortunately for Narcotics Anonymous, um, through some step work that I had made amends, that means to make it right with my sister years before, long before that, and I didn't have any shame or guilt or doubt about what I was going to have to do to get back to Florida. And by the way, my wife was struggling with brain cancer at that time. And so we were, she was terminal, and her mother and her sister were house-sitting so they could spend time with her. And that was part of the reason why it was okay for me to go to Africa, because they needed that time alone. But my wife, before she was, but by the way, my wife is cancer-free today, and she's training for the Gasparilla Distant Classics, but she runs marathon. But at that time, the doctors had told us that was nothing else they could do. But my, my, my critically ill wife and I went to Maryland, got my sister, and was able to bring her home and give her a proper burial, all because of support from the fellowship, step work, a loving God, And you know that thing about being involved in service and making a difference? You know, I didn't, I didn't start doing service because I thought that was why I needed to do that. But being of service has not only taught me how to go to area service and conduct myself um, as being the only basic text that some people might see, but it's also taught me how to serve my family properly too and how to have dignity and follow through because, you know, my instincts told me to stay and speak that night rather than folding up and go isolate in a room and cry about the loss of my sister. And the next year when I went back to that same community, um, many members who had lost family members came to me and talked about that grief and how they processed that and how uh, watching another member who they thought was an experienced member, because I do have more 
recovery, more, more time in the fellowship than a lot of those people did. But they grew from my experience. Um, so yeah, we, we've all had loss, but I've also had some gains. I'm the best grandfather in the whole fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, all you have to do is ask K.O. and Kristen and Taylor and stuff. And that's all the result of being a member of Narcotics Anonymous. So I've been allowed to be a, 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 a grandfather and a parent as a result of that meeting on May 10th, 1984, when that psychiatrist that you all at 12-step um, sent me to my first meeting. And I'm grateful for that, Ron and David. And I actually do believe that you're the best grandpa in the fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous. <laughs> I don't have any trouble believing that, although uh, I recently became a grandpa myself, so I'm gonna give you a run for your money. I hope you do.